We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Genesis today, and we are focusing on the chapters which follow the life of Abraham. And in my studies of Genesis uh, for this sermon series, one sentence made me giggle out loud in my office. And it was when Victor Hamilton and his commentary wrote this. He said, domestic conundrums of unbelievable complexity are never far from Abram. And that is so the truth. Domestic conundrums of unbelievable complexity. In other words, Abram's got family problems. And there's probably no bigger domestic conundrum in Abram's life than what we find today in Genesis 16, as his wife, Sarai, suggests a scheme that's going to jumpstart the promise of God being fulfilled. So if you will, you can open up your Bibles or turn in your bullets, and we're in Genesis chapter 16, continuing our study, looking at the life of Abram. Genesis 16, I'll begin in verse 1 as we hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me, between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, 
You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kaddish and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the Bible has not been sanitized to make it seem like the lives of the saints of old were sin-free or shame-free or suffering-free, but that you reveal very human predicaments and messes of the like that we find ourselves in today. So God, we pray that you would use this living and active inspired word for your purposes. That Lord, in spite of my weakness, that you would faithfully send forth your word and the power of the spirit and answer to our prayers. That you would help me to expound and apply the word and that you would open our ears to hear it. Opening our hearts and minds to receive it gladly as your word, letting it mold and shape us as you do your work through your word convicting us and encouraging us and leading us to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we look at the Bible this morning in Genesis 16, I want us to see we've got three main human characters in our passage. We've got Sarai, Abram, and Hagar, and they all mess up. They all have certain flavors of sin that they demonstrate here. And so we're going to look at how each of their different flavors of sin contributes to this muddled mess that they find themselves in. And then we will see how God's mercy shows up in this mess. And so since chapter 16 begins with Sarai, we also will begin with her. Sarai's action drives the story that she puts a plot into motion that succeeds, but does not satisfy. We are reminded that Sarai had not yet borne Abram any children. Sarai was barren. She had always been barren. And now she was barren and old. 75 years old at this time. She and Abram had tried to conceive for decades with no success. And Sarai's like, I got, this ain't working. And so she concocts a plan. I've got this female Egyptian servant who's named Hagar. And so she says to her husband, Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So in order to to circumvent her barrenness that was blocking the fulfillment of God's promise, Sarai suggests a surrogate. And it seems that this was an acceptable practice in the ancient world to ensure that a man would have a male heir after him. But just because something is culturally acceptable does not make it acceptable in the eyes of God. And that is Sarai's particular flavor of sin in our story. That Sarai sought godly ends through culturally acceptable, yet still sinful methods. 
the outcome she desired was good. God promised that Abram should have a son. Okay? The plan she proposed was culturally acceptable. A servant could be a surrogate in those times. But this plan broke God's design for marriage. Sarai sprinkled sin into her plan instead of trusting that God would fulfill His promise if they merely trusted and obeyed Him. And so though Sarai's plan is successful, Hagar does indeed get pregnant, and quickly, in fact, her plan does not satisfy. Now remember, this was Sarai's plan. And yet she is the one who is furious when her plan works. She is filled with jealous anger that Hagar makes conceiving a child look so easy. Sarai is not overjoyed that God kept his promise to give Abram a child. Sarai is not proud that, man, my creative thinking worked. No. If anything, this new reality is worse than before. Because sin has spoiled her relationships with both her husband Abram and her servant Hagar. Sarai's mess is a reminder for us that we should not try to sprinkle sin into our plans of getting what God wants for us. Even if the world is accepting of such sins. In our search for a godly spouse, we should not adopt the culturally acceptable practice of cohabitation. In our yearning for a godlier nation, we should not adopt the culturally acceptable practice of hating our enemies. Yes, the world says it's okay to do those things, but that is adding sin into God's plans. And following the Lord and trusting Him is going to lead to difficulty, waiting, struggles as Sarai had faced for decades, but they are the right kind of difficulties. Because obedience to God can make us uncomfortable. It can lead to suffering. But it also puts us in a position of trusting the Lord. Trusting Him to do what He has promised to do. And that's something Sarai did not do in our passage. But don't worry, Sarai was not the only one who sinned in our story. Abram also sinned by abdicating the responsibility as leader of the family. Sarai comes to him and is like, all right, I got this plan. Impregnate my servant. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Abram, my guy, what are you doing? Like, what is, what is that? Like, I could understand if Sarai was like, hey, what if we got Honey Nut Cheerios instead of plain Cheerios? Yeah. Sure. Listen to the voice of your wife. That sounds like a great idea. But this is like a huge decision deviating from God's promise. What are you doing, Abram? And if you don't believe me that he's a bonehead, just compare what he did to what Adam did in chapter 3. Consider how similar the stories of Genesis 16 and Genesis 3 are. In both stories, the wife makes a suggestion to her husband. And in both instances, the husband listens to the voice of his wife. In both instances, the woman gives something to her husband, which he then takes. There is a very clear echo of the fall here. 
that just as Adam should have corrected Eve's error, so also Abram should have stopped Sarai's scheme. This doesn't mean don't ever listen to your wives. Certainly not. Clearly, he's doing something wrong here. And so is she. Everyone's wrong. Abram did not stop Sarai. He went right along with her plan. And it worked. But it causes tension. And Sarai brings her irrational frustration to Abram, saying, may the wrong done to me be on you. And Abram in this moment, thank God, does not say, honey, this was your idea. Like that's, I just, I assume like that, that had, he had to have said that, but it does not say he said that. So I'm not going to say he did, but what he says is not all that better. It's really not better. He says, behold, your servant is in your power Do to her as your, as you please. Abram again does nothing. He gives Sarah all the agency to do what she wants to do. It's Abram's way of washing his hands of this mess saying, Hey, I did what you told me to do. This is your problem. He makes no effort to repair the broken relationships. And so Abram takes this approach that this Hagar thing is not his problem because it's her mess. But as Sarai's husband, Sarai's problems are Abram's problems. He should have exercised selfless, loving leadership of Sarai. And he should have helped Hagar as well by encouraging reconciliation with her mistress. But Abram does neither. Simply sending Sarai away to further mistreat Hagar. Sure, you could have heard from Abram. He'd been like, hey, you know, I just, I didn't want to get in the middle of a fight. I didn't want to do any of that. But these women are both his wives at this moment. And they are both in need of some servant leadership to help them reconcile. And he's doing nothing. We can wrongly think that doing nothing will just keep the peace. And you know what? Sometimes it does. But not always. There can also be consequences when we fail to act. We see this in very high-profile instances of failures of leadership to act. When church leaders do nothing in response to allegations of abuse. That is a major failure. There are also far more ordinary ways we see this Like when parents neglect to discipline their children out of laziness or out of apathy. Sin can spread its poisonous consequences through inaction, just like action. Especially when those who fail to act have been entrusted with leadership. That's what we see Abram do in Genesis 16. And one of the people that gets hurt by Abram's failure to act, is Hagar. Hagar is primarily a victim in this story. It is likely that Abram and Sarai acquired Hagar when they were in Egypt in chapter 12. And so she's probably been with them for roughly five or ten years. She's clearly younger than Sarai. Almost certainly she's not married. But we don't know her opinion on this surrogacy arrangement. Because as a servant... Her agency doesn't matter. She does what she is told to do. Hagar complies and conceives. 
And we see that what Sarai had tried so hard for decades to accomplish came so incredibly easy to Hagar. And Hagar relishes this victory over her mistress. As our Old Testament reading from Proverbs 30 showed us, that earth cannot handle when a maidservant displaces her mistress. Now, Hagar is strutting around as the fertile woman able to give Abram what Sarai never could. It allows the servant to look down on the master, finding great joy in this vindictive behavior. But as good as it made Hagar feel, this spiteful scorn towards Sarai was sinful. Hagar may have been a victim in this story, but she also responded vindictively. And you can understand why. If you look in the passage, Abram and Sarai never mention Hagar by name. She's my servant or your servant. In their eyes, Hagar is merely a child production tool. And yet as poorly as she was treated, her vindictive response is still sinful. The Lord tells us that vengeance is mine. And he tells us that so we do not retaliate in sinful anger and vitriol on those who have harmed us. Jesus says it differently. He says we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Because we see what happens when we respond by hitting back. The contempt that Hagar directed at Sarai rebounded back at her. In verse 6, it says, Sarai dealt harshly with her. And so now Hagar is running away, alone and pregnant, in the direction of Egypt. When we've been hurt, we imagine that getting back at those who hurt us is going to solve our problem. It's, it's going to soothe our hurts. But revenge doesn't satisfy. And it certainly doesn't heal. I have to imagine that many, if not all of you, can think of instances in the not-so-distant past where someone in your family retaliated. Verbally, physically, and I bet it didn't make things better. And I bet family drama intensified instead of healed. Kids, as Miss Abby talked about in the children's message, I bet you can think of times when a sibling hit you and you hit back, and you know what? Didn't make things better. Made things worse. We see this in our own lives. God calls us to trust that He will make things right. And we trust in Him by forgiving others instead of retaliating in anger. And perhaps the most powerful example we can see in our world today is when sometimes you see on the news the testimony of the family members of murder victims when they release statements about how they forgive the murderer and pray for him that he would come to know Jesus. That kind of response is only possible if we are trusting in a holy yet merciful God who really exists and sees all that is going on in life. And that very God is the God who met Hagar when she was on the run. 
She ran miles and miles away from Sarai, stopped at a spring of water, and we're told the angel of the Lord appeared to her. We'll talk more about the angel of the Lord in chapter 18. For right now, he's a representation of God. And so God shows up, and he shows up in this mess. That it was Hagar's own sin and the sins of others against her that led her to this spring of water, and it was there the Lord met her. See, sin is always bad. Sin always has negative consequences. But sin creates messes that provide an arena for the mercy of God to shine forth. And so how do we see God's mercy shine in Genesis 16? Well, first we see it shine through the names in this chapter. The angel of the Lord says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from, and where are you going? Remember, Abram and Sarai don't call her by name. And the first word out of the mouth of the angel of the Lord is Hagar. God knows her name. God calls her by name. He does not see a servant. He does not see a tool. He sees an object of his mercy whom he loves for and cares for. Just saying her name shows how different he is from Abram and Sarah. Hagar then responds to that by giving God a name, which is nearly unheard of in the ancient world, just a person, let alone a servant girl, giving a name to God, saying he is a God of seeing since he looked after her on her journey. And then God gives her son a name, saying, call his name Ishmael. To remind you that the Lord listens to your affliction. That we have a God who sees us and hears us in the messes of our sinful lives. He knows us by name and sees the sins we have committed and the sins others have committed against us. And he has mercy on us. So these names shine forth the mercy of God. But it's not just the names, it's what God tells Hagar as well where we see the mercy shine. And initially, the angel does not seem super merciful. He says, return to your mistress and submit to her. Sounds a lot like God's telling Hagar, hey, go back to that cruel slavery you came from. But the reality is that God wants Hagar to stay connected to the person he has promised to bless. See, back in chapter 12, God said, I promise to bless those who bless Abram. And you know what? Hagar is blessing Abram by burying his son. Return and reconcile with Sarai. You will be blessed as you are connected to them. And then God motivates her to go back with some big promises. He says, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for a multitude. Now, it's not the same promise he gives to Abram, but it's similar. That Hagar, this Egyptian servant girl, of no importance, is now promised by the almighty God of the universe that you will have many descendants. Wow. Now, to be fair, it sounds like this first one, Ishmael, is a bit of a handful. I don't think a wild donkey of a man is meant to be a compliment. But God does promise that this Egyptian servant girl will have a multitude of descendants. So he doesn't send her back simply to suffer but to reap the blessings of his mercy. And at the end of this, she goes back and has her son and 
They are reunited. Now, it's not that hard to imagine Genesis 16 going very differently. What if Abram had said, honey, that's a horrible idea. We are not going to do it. What if Sarai had just thought, you know what? Nah, let's not do that. That's not a good idea. Where would Hagar be then? Where would Hagar be if none of this sinful mess had ever happened? And would she have this great promise from God? No. Though it was her sin and the sins of others that led her to this helpful place, it was in that mess that God's mercy flowed forth. God often shows His mercy when we are most in need of mercy, and we are rarely in greater need than when we are in the mess of the sin of our lives. That's where God's mercy shows up. But notice the context of how we receive this mercy. This mercy will come if she returns to her mistress. I can promise you, Hagar was not like, boy, I can't wait to go back there. She did not want to go face the woman who made her life miserable. She did not want to go back to that domestic conundrum. She didn't want to deal with her sin and the sins of others. But God knows that in order for us to receive His saving mercy, we need to deal with our sins. And we need to deal with our sins not by ignoring them, not by justifying them, not by trying to make up for them. We deal with our sins by humbly bringing our mess before God and saying, Lord, you need to clean this up because I can't. I'm going back to that mistress, trusting that this mess is not going to get worse, but that your mercy is going to help us. See, the story of Hagar makes me think of that New Testament reading from Mark 7. That Gentile woman in the story was in desperate need, thirsting for the mercy of God for her daughter. And Jesus asked her a question to see how desperately she needed this mercy. To see if anything about pride would get in the way. And he likened this woman to a dirty, scavenging dog. But rather than this woman being like, how dare thee? Instead of doing that, she just owned it. She owned it. She didn't get bent out of shape. She's like, yeah, I'm a mess. I don't deserve your mercy. But I need it. This is the mess, Jesus. Help me, please. She was willing to set anything aside as long as it meant receiving God's mercy. And that's exactly what the angel of the Lord called Hagar to do. Return to Sarai. Go back to that mistress who dealt harshly with you. Go back to that domestic conundrum in your tent. Go back and try to live at peace, trusting that God sees you and hears you and will bless you as you trust in Him. And so for us today, I imagine we have some sinful messes in all sorts of flavors in our lives. Maybe some of us tend to sin more like Sarai, using worldly means to try to accomplish godly ends. Maybe some of us are more like Abram, 
racking up sins of omission due to apathy and cowardice. Still others of us are like Hagar, justifying our sinful words and attitudes because we have been badly sinned against. So I want to encourage you, whatever kind of mess you're in today, cry out to the God who sees you, the God who hears you, the God who knows you by name. And trust that His mercy is more than whatever mess you have found yourself in. And He can clean it up. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You that You are a faithful and merciful God. And we pray that You would give us eyes to see the mess that our sin has put us in. Whether we are seeing it for the first time or for the thousandth time. And help us to continually come back to You in repentance, knowing how desperately each day we need Your mercy. God, help us to see that we cannot clean ourselves up, but that You must do it. Help us to see our need of Jesus, who on the cross paid for our sins fully, that we might be forgiven and washed clean in Him. May we trust in Him and Him alone. Amen.